The Nerd Out security panel discussion that you are about to hear was recorded as part of a hostile event preparedness webinar hosted on May 14th for the community of faith. Many faith-based organizations are working towards reopening. As such, the Gate 15 team spent a few minutes highlighting some security considerations. Good afternoon. We're now going to get started on our webinar. This webinar is part of Gate 15's Hostile Events Preparedness Series. I am Maya Saab, the Executive Director of the Faith-Based Information Sharing and Analysis Organization. Thanks for joining, joining us for this webinar. Back in 2019, we began presenting webinars on this important topic to the community of faith. In a letter to the faith-based community, Brian Harrell, Assistant Director of Infrastructure Security at the Department of Homeland Security said, Quote, in this dynamic threat environment, we face the reality that differences in ideology can result in attacks even in the most holy of places. In order to reduce the probability of another successful attack and mitigate the impacts of those that do occur, it is incumbent on all of us to remain vigilant and collectively identify innovative risk mitigation solutions, end quote. Given the unfortunate rise in hostile events at places of worship, being prepared is the most important things that, thing that a faith-based organization can do. I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our panelists for today. Jennifer Lynn Walker is the Director of Cybersecurity Services at Faith-Based ISAL. Dave Pounder is the Director of Threat and Risk Analysis at Gate 15. And of course, Andy Jabour is Senior Advisor to Faith-Based ISAL. And as I mentioned, I am the Executive Director of Faith-Based ISAL. Our panelists are going to discuss thoughts on security issues related to reopening facilities, which is what is everyone on, what the topic on everyone's mind these days. So the first question that we're going to address or the first thought is please discuss any external security concerns we may want to think about at this time. And Jen is going to get us started with this question. Hi, Maya. Thank you very much. So, yes, in the, um, uh, given my title of Director of Cybersecurity Services, I'm going to discuss a few things in the context of hostile cyber events um, preparedness. Um, so, and probably one of the most notably reported hostile cyber events affecting faith-based organizations, especially houses of worship during this COVID situation, is Zoom bombing. Zoom bombing has become somewhat of a poster child, if you will, of cyber or online harassment. And I would definitely put it in the hostile category. Certainly there are a lot of Zoom bombing incidents that are just disruptive, but it has become quite the platform for those wishing to harass um, others, especially faith-based organizations and houses of worship. A quick search, Google search for Zoom bombing associated with things like worship or faith or racist or racism, yields over about 93,000 results. And that's just since the end of March. Zoom bombing activity uh, ranges from anti-Semitic and other hate messages to extremely disturbing, unsavory, uh, to downright vulgar, um, not to mention illegal images, videos, graffiti, chats, pictures, as well as verbal outbursts. Zoom bombing has affected online services across all faiths, uh, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Catholics, and various other Christian denominations. Even support meetings such as Alcoholics Anonymous have been subjected to it, not to mention numerous schools and universities. According to Wikipedia, Zoom bombing has become the unwanted intrusion into a video conference call by an individual that causes disruption. 
And this term Zoom bombing is largely derived from the name of the popular um, video conferencing platform with the same name, Zoom. Um, but it is used to refer to more of a phenomenon uh, that's occurring across other video conferencing services. So Zoom isn't the only one that can be Zoom bombed um, if settings aren't properly set for other video con conferencing services that can happen there too. So how does it happen? There are indeed different methods and techniques to accomplish Zoom bombing, but I think the most relevant to faith-based organizations really started due to the unsecured and open meeting links that were being posted and shared in public forums, namely social media sites like Twitter and Instagram, and also organizations' own, own websites. Um, you know, these one-click links to get into a meeting that didn't require any passwords or any registration. Um, and for houses of worship that welcome and invite anyone to the, join their services, that method of sharing is certainly understandable, but social media is littered with internet trolls and miscreants. And by that I mean these people that are Zoom bombing are not sophisticated cyber threat actors. They are really just a bunch of punks with a computer and an evil spirit. And a little later I'll be back to discuss how to be prepared against avoided, uh, excuse me, to be prepared and avoid being Zoom bombed. Um, Dave, what do you have for us? Thanks, Jen. Jen and I were actually talking about this separately, about how Zoom bombing is actually could be somewhat of a gateway into larger kind of more physical activities um, as individuals. But that, I think that's a topic for a little bit later. But, but for me, I think the biggest concern that so focused on is that while we're we're looking very closely at the health guidelines and making sure we're within compliance and we're doing all the right things on the health side, we, we don't want to overlook those physical threats out there. And, and they didn't go away once COVID happened. They just were constrained to their houses or, or apartments or wherever. Um, and it actually gave them, it may have given them individuals or groups more motivation to lash out about something that has happened to them over the past couple months. They may have lost their job. They may be in a tough financial situation, maybe experiencing some relationship or marital problems and, and looking for somebody to blame or and somebody being to hold responsible for. And that's what I kind of worry about. We know that terrorists and extremist groups were very active online, pushing out their narratives. They were really good about capitalizing on this, really a lot of anti-Semitic uh, activity um, and so while we need to ensure that we're watching those health guidelines, we also need to remember our, our key security principles and be aware of suspicious activities or behaviors that might signal something else. Andy? Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I mean, I think one, you know, whenever we talk about these things, I'm going to be mindful of the fact that um, you know, we're always thinking of the worst things that could happen. That's not to exaggerate the likelihood they'll occur, right? So I don't think that it's very likely we're gonna see a lot of external acts of violence. I think we might see some lower level ones, but I think there are some that are very real we have to at least be thinking about because they could occur. And I think you know, to compliment the two of you have already shared, I think there's two things I think about the most. One is just the continued, you already touched on this Dave, but the continued um, you know, things we're seeing and hearing from extremist groups, uh, focusing on certain faith-based groups in particular right now, you know, anti-Jewish sentiment continues, um, that um, sadly always continues. There's a new report out talking about how it's, it continues to be at a very high rate here in the US. And, and just recently, another one said the same thing in, in parts of Europe. Um, so that, that's a sad constant. And I think as, as Jewish facilities reopen, uh, they're certainly uh, you know, open to 
uh, threats and threat actors. I think that we can the reopening is occurring during Ramadan. I think opens the Muslim community up to some additional concerns as well. Just as people return to worship, there have already been arson attacks and threats made against mosques around the country. Um, there, there's misinformation about you know mosques having assembly and mass prayers when they're not, um, which can raise uh, some folks' anxiety and anger uh, towards that religious group. And so that's something to think about. And I think for all organizations, in particular churches that have been called out, while some have been very vocal in staying open or encouraging uh, to disregard state and local guidance and to go ahead and uh, have mass events anyway when they're not supposed to yet, uh, some may, may get frustrated with activities like that and may take out uh, their frustrations in acts of violence. And, you know, and, and that doesn't necessarily have to occur at the place it might be having uh, a congregation or an assembly outside of the rules. Um, but they may take it out anywhere they perceive uh, is acting inappropriately. And so just the, the possibility of really lone actors uh, lashing out in violence, whether it's arson or something you know, even more destructive, I think is a real, a, a real concern, not a, a likely uh, threat, but certainly a real threat that needs to be considered and, and we need to prepare for. We're trying to figure out how to manage all the other security and safety concerns we have to consider as, as faith-based organizations reopen. Thank you. Our next sort of uh, question and discussion point is, this has been a challenge in many ways. Are there mental health concerns, stressors, or other issues that could develop into violence against oneself or others? So Dave, do you want to get us started on that one? Yeah, thanks, Maya. I mean, this is kind of like a, a a party foul because it's a pre precursor to this larger webinar that we'll be discussing because really that's what we're going to be getting into. Those stressors and grievances are two of the leading concerns when you talk about hostile events and planning purposes and and this pandemic really has it all tough financial situations periods of isolations where the you know deep dives into the internet. I was saying relationship problems there's drug and alcohol issues, there might be even some pent up violence that gets lashed out on with domestic violence incidents. So it's unfortunately, it's a perfect storm. And, and that's really, you know, as we start to reopen and people start to normalize, or I'll put in quotations, normalize activities, um, that's when we really need to be alert and aware as individuals, as organizations training our, our employees and in some of these other areas is we really need to remember about alerting for suspicious behaviors, suspicious activities, and seeing how those things are going to play out once we start going back out um, into this reopening, uh, this different type of uh, what, what our businesses are going to be like and what our interactions are going to be like. Yeah. And I'll add on to what Dave said there a little bit, uh, not, not so much on the mental health part, although that's a, a component, really more on the stressors piece. And as a lot of us, almost all of us have been cooped up at home. A lot of folks are spending more time in front of screens, be it television or devices or radio or in conversation, uh, sort of reinforcing our, our existing beliefs, whatever those are. And for those that are um, frustrated by some of the restrictions, you know, social distancing, mask wearing and things of that nature, if a faith-based organization is reopening and applying some of those uh, measures, which we, as faith as I shall encourage, you know, to, to respect local guidance and to comply with, you know, safe reopening and 
uh, some of our, our team and volunteers are, are working on that right now. Uh, the reality is some folks may, may sort of come in already agitated, and so they may not respond well to greeters, ushers, and other individuals that are trying to enforce um, respectfully and gently, perhaps, you know, safe, safety protocols. And so if, if we've seen this occur around the country already at a lot of retail establishments where people have re responded, uh, in some cases, just uh, in frustration and doing things they shouldn't do, like wiping their face on somebody's shirt. In other cases, in actual violence, that it has even ended in, in death when people have tried to enforce mask policies and social distancing policies. That's a real concern because some people might come already with their mindset on, I'm not wearing a mask or I'm gonna sit where I want. And so for those individuals to come in with that high level of tension already there, having been cooped up for a couple of months, uh, that's a potential flashpoint that people need to be cognizant of as we, as we go about reopening. Jen, anything you wanna add? Sure, in keeping with the, the Zoom bombing team, if you will, um, you know, given the nature of peace that I'm familiar with, um, I'm hesitant to say that Zoom bombing would lead a person from a faith-based organization or a house of worship that had been subjected to Zoom bombing, um, it, hesitant to say it would lead them to violence. However, to highlight the very real mental trauma, there was a Zoom bombing incident at a church um, in Waco, Texas on April 26th, and those, were, those who were subjected to the images uh, very vulgar, uh, illegal images, were given the opportunity to meet with a church member who was a counselor. You know, about 15 people attended in order to process what they had seen and receive spiritual care and emotional support. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't play one on TV, um, so I don't want to take, take it that much further, but I can imagine that that imagery and those hate messages and harassment could certainly be a stressor or cause depression or PTSD um, in some that might be at risk for greater harm. Um, on the other hand, I could see how a hostile perpetrator might use Zoom bombing in their pre-attack planning and or to get their feet wet and then escalate to more destructive acts of violence against uh, the FBO or the House of Worship in person. Thank you. So the next slide, Damien. As we look at maybe Damien is having some technical issues. I'm gonna read the question. As we look at reopening and re-entry, what are some of the concerns FBOs may want to consider for their security personnel? I think you all touched on that a little bit, but maybe you could go into it, into the topic a little deeper. So Dave, do you want to start us off? Yeah, and I think you're right, Maya. We did hit on both of those parts of, you know, the hate-based attacks and also uh, what Andy touched on regarding um, the, you know, those sensitivities around don't tell me what to do type of things, you know, the frustrations that may be there when you go back and when the houses of worship do open back up and, and you have individuals who are accustomed to sitting, you know, the traditions of the service and, and I'm going to sit where I want to sit. I'm going to do what I want to do. They may come in with that mindset. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. So just to reinforce that with what Andy's saying, in fact, you know, we just saw, uh, a man, you know, shoot and, and kill a security guard over the last couple of days because he was told to wear a face mask at a um, at a mall. So th those type of things are going to occur, and we're going to see more of those as we broaden out things. But if we go back to the hate-based attacks, you know, earlier this week, it's in the the you know the face-based journal this week is the Anti-Defamation League published findings that saw that anti-Semitic um, 
attacks were at a 40-year high. And this was from 2019. This didn't even incorporate what has happened in 2020. So we're already in an upward trend with that type of thing. So, and couple that with the stuff that's been going on online, couple that with some of the uh, isolated attacks that we've seen in, in Ramadan. Um, and I, I think you've just got a potential sensitivity to what has been happening over the last couple of months. We're now being enjoying a, a, a bunch of freedoms. How are these things going to manifest itself? And I think it's just that reminders about those core security principles as we go through time and time again is rehashing those. And before we do these reopenings, these are the things we need to remind our employees about or, or, or our members and, and stuff and maybe have that discussion at the beginning of a of a service or, or, or whatnot. So those are the things I'd be looking at. We've already talked about that, but it's worth really stressing. Andy? Yeah, I'll, I'll just build on, on both of our comments a little bit. And you know, as, as we deal with this, I think something that organizations don't typically do very well all the time, and not just faith-based organizations, but organizations broadly, I think is even more important right now especially for faith-based organizations, is helping people understand, helping volunteers and staff understand what to do when somebody does not listen to the instruction being given. So if, if you've got a, a greeter that is to ensure that people wear masks and, and somebody approaches them and refuses, that's, that's a difficult situation for somebody to be in, especially if they are a volunteer and just you know not there all the time. And so we've really got to think through protecting personnel and that means letting them know what am I supposed to do when people don't comply? You know, what, what, who do I reach out to? Where do I go? That means having a plan for that. It means having somebody at the ready, you know, maybe a, a staff member or a more senior person or however you're going to do it. We, we really got to think through what do we do when somebody does not comply? Because if we're doing that ad hoc, um, that's an easy way for, again, tensions to flare up on both sides and for things to escalate in a way that we really don't want. But if we're thoughtful about that ahead of time, anticipate and assume that somebody's going to object what we're trying to do here today, then we can come up with a plan on how to address that. And those we're asking to be there on the front line, uh, trying to enforce those standards and policies and procedures can be more confident that they know what to do when things do go awry. And that saves us all a lot of stress and grief and potentially confrontation that could, unlikely, but could lead to acts of you know, violence or, or other concerns as we've seen, uh, and as Dave, Dave mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, I think I'll stop there. And Jen, you want to you wanna wrap that up? Sure. So yeah, absolutely. When we get there, those are all amazing concerns. But I think, you know, a lot of places are still a little ways away from that. So until we get back to our mass gatherings in person for worship services, there will still be a lot of online meetings. So what can we, you know, I promised earlier, I, I talked about some mitigation steps. What can we do to protect ourselves from and avoid being Zoom bombed during services. Now, Zoom has hardened settings that previously made Zoom bombing very easy and very trivial. Um, they have configured and hardened default settings to significantly minimize the ability to Zoom bomb, including, including requiring passwords for every meeting. But ultimately, the onus is still on organizations to closely manage their administrative and security settings. Um, being particularly judicious with waiting rooms, screen sharing, and the like. After a recent Zoom bomb incident um, at the church in Waco, Texas that we mentioned earlier, um, the pastor stated that part of the reason it was so bad from their perspective was, be, was out of human error. Um, their settings were not correctly set, and that allowed the perpetrator to get in and post things um, that everybody could see. 
So besides keeping Zoom up to date with the latest software um, version, what else can houses of worship do to avoid from being Zoom bombed? They can actually set up Zoom services to seem very much like an in-person service, meaning you can effectively utilize Zoom's built-in features such as the waiting room to configure something like a lobby or like, you know, like a, an atrium where hopeful attendees are met by a greeter, which would be a co-host, who the co-host or greeter can then vet the attendees before approving their entrance into the sanctuary or meeting room as Zoom calls it. And then in the sanctuary or meeting room, they would be able to do nothing but view the service. They would have zero interaction because the administrator would have disabled the participants' ability to share their screens. They wouldn't be able to chat with other participants or even change their name. Some of them change, just change their name to something vulgar if, if that's all they have uh, that they can do. Um, so, and I know that's the opposite of the community and the fellowship experience that we're all looking to get back to. Um, but when it comes to the online services, it really uh, goes towards peace of mind to keep your worship uh, experience, online worship experience peaceful and free from embarrassment or worse. Thank you all. That was very informative. There's certainly a lot of issues to consider and a lot of topics to cover. We do, as, as an organization, put out reports on specific topics. So if you're not a member of Faith-Based ISAL, you should consider uh, perhaps joining so that you can get some of these reports that we issue uh, week, daily, weekly, and monthly. Thank you.